Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Welcome back to this month's edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and the topic of this particular show is bias. And I have to admit, I am biased towards my co-host, Hilary Gates. Hey, how are you doing? Wow, I like that. Is it inherent? Is it unconscious? Or is it explicit? Well, we're about to find all of that out. Also, before we go any further, H, let's bring in our guest slash host, which I think makes her a ghost, our own medical director, Dr. Maya Dorset. Maya, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am so excited that we are discussing this topic. I think it's one of the most important things that we need to discuss as EMS educators today. So Hilary, why don't you introduce our real guests for the show today? You got it. We have with us today two incredible EMS educators who are changing the way we practice our instruction and who are making a difference in the field for our students as well. And those two folks are Katie O'Connor and Sahaj Khalsa, and I will have each of them introduce themselves. Katie? Hi, I'm Katie. I'm a paramedic based in Los Angeles, also in Washington, D.C., so gets both coasts on there. Great. And Katie, tell us a little bit about where you teach and what your roles are. So I've been um, teaching in Los Angeles for the last four years and also teaching at the George Washington University's Medical Faculty Associates in D.C. for about six years. And I'm currently working with the Los Angeles County EMS agency trying to improve simulation for paramedic training in the county. Thanks. Sahaj? Hi, I'm Sahaj Khalsa. I'm a paramedic in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Been a paramedic a little while program director at the community college here in Santa Fe. Wonderful. We are tackling a topic that can sometimes be uncomfortable or shocking to talk about, not only in our own industry and healthcare in general, but also personally. So we want to make sure that we define terms and that we talk about things with a scientific basis and that we are making sure that the studies that we mentioned are referenceable by you as well. So we're going to start with some definitions. And Sahaj and Katie have done some research on this topic. And the terms like inherent bias, implicit bias, unconscious bias get thrown around a lot. Sahaj, can you kind of walk us through what are the acceptable ways to think about these definitions? Sure. So we did some work, NEMSI did some work on a position paper that discussed some of these issues that we published in 2020. In the position paper, we defined some of these terms, and I'll be honest, we haven't defined all of the ones that you just mentioned, but we have defined some of the terms. Unconscious bias is something that we've discussed in our paper, and it's also what I think we really need to make conscious, not let it stay unconscious. And basically, it's learned attitudes or stereotypes that exist in our subconscious and can involuntarily affect the way we think and act. And it's important that we acknowledge that it's not a mandate that when we notice difference, we act on it. We don't have really the choice of whether or not we notice those differences but it's whether or not we choose to act on them that is important. Some of the other terms that we used, we talked about cultural competence a lot, and we've actually, NEMSI has moved away from using that term because it implies an endpoint in learning. And in this realm, there's not really an endpoint in learning. Cultural competence, we'll just define that as we did in the paper. We 
frankly, we borrowed somebody else's definition in the paper. But it's the ability of providers to effectively deliver healthcare services that meet the social, cultural, and linguistic needs of patients. Obviously, that's important, but we recognized, as I said, that there's not, as educators, we talk about competence all the time, right? But in this realm, really what we felt was more important was the notion of cultural humility. And I'll just define that really quick, as we did in the paper as well, which is a process of inquisitiveness, self-reflection, critiquing, and lifelong learning. And it stands in contrast to cultural competence because cultural humility is never mastered. We acknowledge that we're not going to ever know everything there is about this topic. Wonderful. And Katie, you and Sahaj did this a couple of years ago with Nemzi. Can you talk more about the actual kind of nuts and bolts of the paper and uh, what you found? Yeah. So we, we were looking at if there was bias in simulation or like bias instilled when we're doing paramedic simulation. And part of this is because as Sahaj mentioned, there's unconscious bias where you don't even realize that you're doing this. And so we were like, is there something happening that we're not sure of? Like, we just need to look at the situation and see if there is bias in our simulation training. So we just wanted to know what are people doing? And we looked at a bunch of different parameters because we think of bias, a lot of times it goes to racial bias, which is really well studied and documented and exists. And it doesn't matter how great your intentions are, everyone has some racial bias. But there's also bias against age and gender. And we see gender specifically when we're thinking of CPR and AED use. So the American Heart Association has really well documented that our female colleagues don't have AEDs used on them, or like female people, I should say, just don't have AEDs used. And um, bystander CPR is just not as predominant in that group. So we wanted to see if there's something that we're doing in paramedic training. And unfortunately, what we found is that there is definitely a bias in the way that we're portraying simulation. And we need to do further research to find out why and what's going on. But everyone who's kind of involved in this field can kind of have some great intelligent guesses about what's happening. And one of the things we found was that when we're using mannequins in simulation, almost always the patient is a white male. And if you look around at the mannequins in your own shop available for purchase, you'll probably find that most of the mannequins are white men. So that kind of aligns with what you would expect. We don't know if this is because that's just what we're presenting to the students. Like, oh, here's, you know, the so-and-so mannequin on the ground. He's having a cardiac arrest. Just do what you want to do. Or if the students are not able to see a different race or gender or age of a patient because they're just looking at something that is portraying a young I joke that it's a football player because he's always got like giant shoulders and giant legs. Yeah, it's like he's ready to be a linebacker, but he's had a heart attack. So it's a healthy looking linebacker who's having all these heart attacks all the time, you know? And it's, I, I imagine it's hard to suspend your disbelief to believe that that's a 76 year old, frail, older woman, right? Katie brings up this point of the mannequins, right? And how many, how many CPR mannequins do we have that have breast tissue? So there's an issue for responders, maybe they're, you know, a lay person who went through a heart saver class or something along those lines, and they want to respond, but how many of their CPR mannequins that they trained on had breast tissue that they had to figure out, what do I do here? And how many of them were clothed to start with? So how many of them learned in their class, how do I safely and appropriately while maintaining the patient's dignity, take off clothes? And what do I need to do to expose? What do I do with bras or other undergarments? So 
if they're not trained to do those things, it it really stands to follow that they don't do them when push comes to shove, right? So we, what's the phrase the military uses is you fight how you train or you train how you fight. And if we're not doing the EMS version of that, it's not at all surprising that we see women who suffer a public cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are significantly less likely to have an AD used on them or to, to receive CPR, and therefore, as we all know, less likely to have a positive outcome. And so not a product plug, but um, just something that's super interesting. If you haven't seen it, check out the womanikin, which is a way to make the mannequin resemble anatomically correct or anatomical female. It's a way to dress up your mannequin to have breasts and put the, the student in that position. So super interesting ways to go about that. So, Hedge, I mean, you've just made some some interesting training points there. And I think it's actually when push comes to push comes to push hard and fast, by the way. But the fact about, you know, exposing the chest, when you tell a lay person we need to expose the chest, and if it is a female, you're absolutely right. There is that reticence, reluctance, and almost embarrassment to, to actually expose the chest in order to do what you need to do. I think that's a point well made. When I was the COO in the city of Richmond, we read some academic papers that talked about the reluctance to perform CPR on the African-American population. And of course, it was the majority of the city. Also, the reluctance to perform CPR when somebody called a 911 call and we were going through the telephone CPR saying, OK, we, you know, need to push hard and fast, etc. No, I'm not doing that. And that, again, was in some of our lowest socioeconomic areas. Richmond has one of the largest sort of project areas on the East Coast. And so, of course, that's where a lot of the calls went to. And there was academic research actually, you know, that said, yes, this is something that happens. We need to do something about it. And of course, what that led us to was to working with the housing association to actually say, okay, when you have your orientation day, we will come in and do CPR for you guys. And we then got sponsorship and Leardale gave us the, the anytime mannequins. You've probably seen them, the inflatable ones. And then we realized, no, you're right. They're the wrong color for the population we're dealing with. And of course they do different um, you know, colors of mannequin. And so, of course, we very quickly changed, flipped that over. And so the, the policy was no CPR, no key. And actually, when you did the CPR, you walked away with the anytime kit so you could continue to practice. And so that's how we kind of cracked that. But I think what we said so far is so valuable. And also, you know, immediately I was starting to think about, well, we go down to the, the Goodwill store and buy a ton of clothes in order to dress the mannequin in order to work out how to cut it off. So that's one of my takeaway points already. So thank you for that. So, Hedge. so, Maya, I mean, what are you thinking? I think that this is going to require a lot of work and sort of revolution and a lot of training programs and a lot of different levels. And I think words matter and how you represent things matters. And, you know, most recently I've been thinking about how we use the word atypical. And really, atypical is a word that's used for the other, and the other is everybody who's not a 50 year old white male. And really, that's not the other. It's the same way that we talk about special populations in EMS. And I think a lot of our educational frameworks, a lot of the terms we use for things like suspected acute coronary syndrome rather than chest pain, we've actually framed that, right, so that we look for things for a particular population and therefore have made everybody else the other. And it's going to require a lot of work, but I think it's work that is well worth it if we think about diagnostic error in our population, which is actually the, the type of error that is the greatest potential for harm for patients. We just don't look at it. We think about sort of 
medication safety and all these other things. But a huge component is whether or not we even consider diagnoses in particular populations. Um, do we perform the interventions that need to be performed in particular populations? And what are the things that are holding us back from doing that? I think structurally within our society and therefore within our education systems, we have built that in and we have to begin deconstructing it, which is, I think, the really important things that Sahaj said about it's time to make the unconscious conscious so that we can systematically work on deconstructing it and work on this continual process. Katie, we're all on camera here. This is an audio podcast, but we can see each other. You are nodding furiously and, and waving up and down. So you've clearly got a point. So come on in. No, I'm thinking what Maya's saying about like the structure and system is what is so important. I think people hear racial bias, unconscious bias, and they're like, no, I'm not that way. I treat everyone the same. I'm an EMS provider. You're seeing it all over social media, especially following this Uvalde shooting. Like firefighters will say of everyone, they'll always rush in. And I'm like, this is the problem. Like, we have to realize that just because we could be the most woke person who cares about everyone and even us, like in this group talking about this, right? We all have unconscious bias and it's because it's in the system and we were born and raised in this, right? Like we were taught these ways and we have to be aware of them. So like when we talk about OB, we have to be aware that women of color have worse outcomes. And when we talk about pain management, Sahaj could go on for days about this. We don't treat people of color the same way that we treat white people with pain management. And when we talk about pediatrics, we don't assess their pain the same way that we're assessing adults. We make assumptions based on their age. We make assumptions based on their skin color. And we're doing this without knowing we are. So even if you're out there saying like, I would never discriminate against a patient, that's what you think, but unconsciously, implicitly, you've been trained to do this and you have to be aware of it to untrain yourself almost. Katie, this is beautiful because one of the things in doing some reading about this issue that I found is that when we are aware of what we're doing and we know that it's a problem and then we're motivated to change, we will change. So part of this podcast and part of our charge today is to just make sure that people are aware that this is happening. I think a lot about why it's happening. And this goes to kind of human psyche and some sociological things that I don't fully understand. But one of the things that doesn't make it any easier for EMS clinicians, I read this in someone else's work, is that in this time pressured situation where we're limited to ambiguous clinical information and scarce resources, we have even less wherewithal to be able to consider a non-biased approach. We're going to hear people say, why are you telling me that I have bias when every single patient I encounter who is experiencing homelessness presents in the same way every single time? Maybe there is an outlier and I should treat that person differently, but it's really hard for our brain to wrap itself around an experience that is new or that we've never had before. So Sahaj or Katie, can you guys talk about how to teach this in the classroom or how to get us to break out of habit? Yeah. So I think it's a great question, right? And, you know, I've talked a lot about the, about this exact topic around New Mexico. I talk about it all the time in my classrooms. I talk about it with our faculty. I talk about it with our students. And I think that's one of the keys, frankly, is have these conversations, have these discussions, right? We use this notion of, well, we work in the, these time-pressured situations, therefore we can't 
fill in the blank, right? For a while, it was, we can't use checklists. Like it's too, we got too much going on, Sahaj. What the hell are you telling me? I need to pull out a checklist. Well, yeah, when you've got too much going on is exactly the moment you need to pull out a checklist, right? And I think we've heard a lot of people talk about it in EMS and use the examples of the miracle in the Hudson, where they're flying a plane over New York City, lose both engines. The first thing they do is pull out the checklist because it's that moment where you've got so much going on that you're not sure like all your cognitive functions are working that you need to pull out that checklist because of that. So in this moment when you're dealing with a critical patient, it's not the the time for you to start having the conversation with yourself or your partner about bias, right? That's the time for you to go through what this patient needs to take care of them and to rely on the structures that you've built, the schema that you've developed because you've had these conversations in your classrooms, at your station, before the call, and normalize having these discussions, right? One of the phrases I use, which raises some eyebrows, is destigmatizing bias. Because there's authors who've talked about this where they say having a bias is as natural as breathing, and it helps us navigate the world. And if you look at it from an evolutionary basis, there's actually benefit from an evolutionary perspective in noticing difference. And I use myself as an example. You can't see this because it's a podcast if you're listening, but I've got a beard and a turban. It's not something you normally see in EMS. When people see me, when I walk into a room for the first time, they notice that I look different. And that's perfectly normal and it's perfectly acceptable. Pretending we don't notice a difference allows us to have these unconscious biases be expressed in our behavior. And if we surface these biases, if we acknowledge them, if we make it okay to say, I see a difference, you look different than I do, that's cool. It's fine. It's great. Like diversity is wonderful. Difference is great. But pretending we're all the same and pretending that we don't notice difference actually perpetuates the problem and perpetuates the gaps we see in care. And, you know, Katie mentioned some of the work that Dr. Bill Lord and I did to look at disparities in care specifically in EMS. And they exist. They're significant. I think that that is one of the most important takeaways is I think people avoid conversations because they're hard or they're uncomfortable or they're worried about saying the wrong thing. But if you don't have the conversation and you don't acknowledge bias, then you're setting up your students and your colleagues for failure and you're propagating disparities in care. It's sort of like psychological safety and medication error, right? The high-performing teams have actually the highest rate of reported errors. And that's because they exist in an environment where everybody feels safe to talk about the errors that happen so that the system can respond to them and make care safer and better. The same parallel, I think, exists for talking about bias and racial bias and the rest of it is you must destigmatize it, acknowledge that it happens, and then think about how you're going to redesign your system, your schema, the rest of it to actively combat it and record the data in your system 
that actually looks at it objectively as well, if you can. This is exceptionally powerful stuff, and uh, we're going to carry this conversation on. Just remember, though, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. But before we go any further, let's just have a quick message from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor, and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver, saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. Thank you, Christine, as always. And just remember again to rate and review us on the platform you're listening on because it puts us up the searchability rating and the algorithms and all that other good stuff. Talking of good stuff. So, Hedge, you're about to pick up where Maya left off. Yeah. So, you know, she said that some people don't want to talk about it because they're worried that they're going to say the wrong thing. And as somebody who's been talking about this for quite a while, let me dispel that worry. You're going to say the wrong thing. Don't worry about it because it's going to happen. And that's not the concern. The concern is how you react, right? How you respond. I've been presenting on this around New Mexico, around you know the Southwest and, and in places across the country to various groups. And almost invariably, when I, I present on this, somebody comes to me afterwards and says, hey, you said the following, and I actually would have preferred you said something else. And my response universally is, thank you very much for bringing that to my attention. I wasn't aware that what I said was problematic. I'm going to make sure I do better going forward. Yeah, you're going to say something that's going to bug some people, guaranteed. So knowing that, cool, go forth and have the conversation because the status quo is unacceptable. The status quo that Dr. Lord and I found was 40% less pain management received by African-American patients with a median pain score of 7 out of 10. 40% less likely to receive pain meds, to have their pain managed. That's that's not okay. So if you're an educator, have this conversation. If you're uh, an employer, if you're a chief, an EMS captain, whatever you are, start looking at this data. And look at it as at a systemic level, right? Because one thing we found in that research is employees respond to what employers are measuring. So if you tell your crews, hey, we're going to look at whether or not we collectively, systemically, not individually, have disparities in care, just by saying that and following through on it, you'll start seeing those gaps get smaller. I think too, like what you guys were saying is you're building in patterns, right? And so once we know that there's a problem with the pattern that we have, then we need to start building a new one. So for me, this is just like, 
if your agency realized, oh man, we are only getting 12 leads on people who complain of chest pain, we're missing anyone with like nausea, vomiting, you're going to change your protocol and add a 12 lead to your abdominal protocol or schema, whatever you're going to do. So here, if we know that there's a problem with pain management, then I'm saying we need to run simulations on people of color with pain and we need to find out what is going on. And because as soon as you say something like this, people are going to be like, well, it's not because of their color. It's because it's so difficult to exchange drugs or all these other things. Well, let's trial the system. Let's do this. Let's do it in simulation where we can see what's actually happening, and then we can address it and we can create new patterns, especially like patterns of thought. So if you're an educator right now in a primary education program, I challenge you, go back and look at your scenarios. Do you have a African-American with a femur fracture, seven out of 10 pain that they need to give pain management to? If you don't, like that right there, one thing you can do to start trying to change the dynamic. Do you have a a woman of color who's having pain postpartum and it's probably a bleed, but we need to make sure that she gets treatment. Like that's the the scenario you have there. But even bigger than that, how many scenarios do you have that are families that are just not the nuclear family, right? Like it's not mom and dad taking care of the child or it's not mom and dad, it's mom and mom or a domestic violence situation where it's a same sex couple or it's a different ages or, you know, there's all sorts of different ways that we can portray our actual communities outside of what might be your norm. And for me, like I grew up in a mom and dad household with brothers, right? So that's probably the, like when I think family, that's what I'm going to bias towards because it's my experience. So I need to make sure when I'm creating families for my simulations, that is not just mine, right? Like my family's got plenty of issues that we could sim all day. Like I, it's there. Like I broke my brother's arms. We've got all sorts of trauma, right? But there are also other families that have other things that we can portray. So think about that when you're looking at your sims. How do we help educators whose resources are limited or who don't have a big budget or don't have mannequins or who are operating in a more austere environment? Katie and Sahaj, what are some ways, and Maya, what are some ways that you found to succeed in the classroom with these scenarios or resources that you can use to to make sure that we're getting the students the right experience? I would say that, that if you don't have mannequins, you're probably actually ahead of the game. When you're not using a mannequin, you actually are less biased in your portraying of people. So when we think of like, oh man, we need to write this grant for this $90,000 high-tech mannequin, I would say, just use it for something else because unless you have someone there to be like the sim tech or whatever, it's probably going to make it harder for you. So use the students. And I'd be the first person to say that the technology that we have work for you. When we went to the pandemic and I had to use technology to get people to come in and be patients, I put it out on social media and I got Hillary to come in and be a crazy lady in Target that challenged my students immensely, but I also got people from Canada and from around the world. And this is just sharing it through the EMS community. And I'd say one of the more powerful times that I've had someone confront bias was inviting an autistic person and their caregiver to the classroom to just talk about what they would prefer when an EMS provider came. Because most of my students had never dealt with anyone who had any type of autism or you know intellectual disability and hearing from them how they would prefer was really moving and powerful. So I don't need to be the expert in autism. I'm not. I'm never going to be. Let's just invite someone to the classroom and you could have them zoom in. You could have them come to your classroom. You could reach out to people like us and get us to come to your classroom or uh, we'll connect you with somebody that's nearby. Like use, leverage the community. I think what you said about actually invite, first of all, inviting patients to the classroom. I 
I'm a few years out of medical school, but I can actually still remember. Um, the only classes I actually honestly remember from my second year of medical school were patients that came in and were interviewed by physicians in front of the classroom. I still remember to this day, there was a patient with sickle cell disease who came and talked about what his experience in the emergency department when he had a pain crisis was. And we talked about it from the standpoint of, you know, how serious his disease is, what is the life expectancy, what are his experiences. But really, um, the thing that I forever have with me, and I sort of actually pull up sort of every single time I have a patient with sickle cell disease and pain who needs pain management in the emergency department is understanding the perspective and the bias and the distaste that they experience on a regular basis in the emergency department. That was a single class for one hour that was over a decade ago. And so having that patient experience, I think, is something that can't be overestimated. I also think you have to examine how you integrate bias into your scenarios. It's not just about thinking about how I um, sort of expand the, the repertoire and think about how do I make my simulations representative of the true population, but there are definitely scenarios that are written that perpetuate bias, right? They make certain chief complaints come from certain demographics. The, the STEMI patient is not usually a homeless patient with schizophrenia complaining about abdominal pain, right? That patient is the patient who's the psych scenario, but understanding, right, of having a broad differential diagnosis for different presentations, taking other things seriously. We build biases into our scenarios, and I have certainly caught myself doing it and tried to re-examine and slowly take those things apart. But it's something that I think is worth going through your your scenarios and the rest of it. That's actually a real life issue for me, Maya, because back back in the day, I had to attend what in the UK was called the coroner's court because my medics attended the same homeless guy they attended every week and was usually drunk, except this time it was a subarachnoid bleed that caused his death. Then, of course, the bias came out while well, he was always drunk, not this time. And so you have to be very, very careful. Uh, so, Hedge, you had a, another point to come in on. I want to co-sign everything Maya just said about how we can reinforce bias in our classrooms. When do we introduce race, gender, ethnicity into our scenarios, right? I've found in some scenarios where you introduce race only when it becomes relevant in reinforcing a stereotype, right? <laughs> And that's incredibly problematic because that's what we're telling our students. Or you send, you tell your students what part of town they're going to because, oh, that's known to have a lot of substance abuse issues, as if those don't exist in the other parts of town, right? So we're pre-programming our students to expect certain things you know, the another example that I use when I talk about this is you send your students in a simulation to a nursing home. And what always happens? Well, they don't have the paperwork. They just got on shift. They don't know anything about this patient. It's not their patient. We tell all of these stories that the research says are way more powerful than the words that come out of our mouths when we say we treat everybody equally. And, you know, we, we maybe pay lip service with air quotes around it to this notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But then we we put it 
on its head when we introduce and reinforce bias in our scenarios or in our test items or in our whatever. And then, you know, one other thing I would say is our students are aware of these things, right? So when you have, and so are our providers. So when you have these conversations with them, none of our students or none of your providers are going to say, oh, I didn't know these things existed. They know, especially if you have a diverse classroom or a diverse workforce, right? You're going to be acknowledging their lived experience and you're going to be talking about their lived experience. So when we worry about talking about this, when I talk about it with our students, they're going, yeah, but it's not news to them that these things exist. And so having the conversation allows them to surface it, allows them to acknowledge it, and normalizes the discussion, which is part of what we have to do to change the, the paradigm that we want to change. I think too, Sahaj, just be really cognizant of the words you're using. Sometimes words that are accepted in the medical community can just be as damning. So the easiest really quick example I have is, is they, are they compliant with their medication? Right. Like there is so much loaded just in that. Is that is there a better way for you to have your students ask this question? Is there a better way for you to phrase it? Just change one word and it can make a huge difference. One of the things you guys keep talking about is this flipping of our assumptions and making making it so that the students have an experience. Maya, your story about listening to a patient with sickle cell is a good example. Making it so students have an experience that's unforgettable. And while I don't think that you have to have kind of a gotcha moment in every single scenario, I'll throw out one that for me has stuck with me forever, which is I was at a conference with uh, a bunch of educators in Southern Idaho and Dylan Brock, who's the, who was the program director there in, at the College of Southern Idaho, did a scenario for us where he had a trans patient who presented as with stomach pain, but looked male on the exterior. Um, you know, when you walked up, it was, and called himself male. And ended up having an ectopic pregnancy. And it's something that when you stop and think, would I have even thought about this, that this patient could get pregnant or was sexually active or still had female anatomy that was functional? Did I uh, lead myself down a path that I wasn't going to get there eventually? I know that's a bit of a unique situation, but there are, are ways I think that we can flip things on their heads or make really impressive experiences for our students that they're never going to forget. All of us, back to Maya's point about the sickle cell patient, have had sickle cell patients in our ambulance who need pain management. And I remember feeling very safe and comfortable knowing about this disease because I'd been taught really well about what it did and how important pain management was. And I wasn't going down that road of bias, not trying to toot my own horn, but it was because of an educator who helped me set myself up for success with this patient who said to me when we got to the hospital, thank you for treating me with dignity. Any last thoughts on pearls of wisdom for our educators out there who are dealing with all the things they have to deal with in EMS education, and we've just given them another thing to think about that is a little bit weighty. Katie, and then Sahaj, and then Maya? Yeah, I think don't try to solve structural racism in your classroom. This is not something that you can do. But if you attack it as, I want to do a little bit better each time, 
then that is just something you can do. And anything that you're doing is something positive. So just whatever you can do, however much you can, a little bit better each time. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. And I would add to it is is just don't not have the conversation because you're worried you're going to say something wrong. We already talked about this a little bit, but I think it's so important. You will say something wrong. It's how you respond to that in the moment that makes the big difference. And the other thing is acknowledge that this is systemic. And as educators, you create the system in your classroom. So as educators, you can help change that system one little bit at a time. And like Katie said, this didn't start yesterday, and unfortunately, it won't end tomorrow. So we all have a role to play in creating a little bit of difference every single time you talk to your students, you run a class. So just commit to doing that. I was going to echo both of what was said. And I think, you know, it's how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I think sometimes these problems can feel overwhelming, but I think with every little step that you take to examine within your own classroom, all these places where you are either propagating or not addressing unconscious bias and pick one thing every time and try and make it conscious. You know, when you write these things, they set you up to have these conversations, right? If you write a sim scenario where there's definitely going to be unconscious bias at play, you know, sometimes we have all our debrief points on the medical management of the patient, but sometimes the debrief point needs to be a frank conversation about how unconscious bias contributed to the decision making around there. That's how you start to have these conversations. You know, vulnerability starts at the top, right? The the culture where you acknowledge that you're going to say the wrong thing and that you have biases that are there when you address patients, right? You have to say, like, what are the things that you do to say, if this patient was a different color in a different situation in a different house, would I treat them the same? And if you ask yourself that question, honestly, you are going to find that the answer is sometimes no. And that is actually how you start addressing the bias by recognizing that it exists within yourself. And you have the opportunity to model that for your students and destigmatize the fact that this has been programmed into your brain. As Sahaj said, it's not that the bias exists, it's whether or not you act on it and you let it impact the care that you give patients. Leaders have the ability to change this, and you are a leader in your classroom, and you have the ability to make that the conversation. Wow, what a discussion. Like all podcasts, you don't realize all of a sudden how long you've been talking for. And we've been going for about 50 minutes. However, I think we can go for another 50. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to consider here. But I think we should come back for part two. What say you guys? Yeah. Okay, well, in which case, uh, let me, before we finish, let me say this has been part one of this amazing EMS Educator podcast with some superb guests We're going to come back and do a part two because I think we have to absolutely carry on this conversation. But Hilary, do you want to close us out? I do. And thank you to our guests and hosts and ghosts for being so vulnerable and for not only showing the passion that you have for EMS education, but showing that you are capable of and willing to address these difficult topics All of us know of an educator or a teacher or mentor in our lives who made us feel safe and who we could come to and who we felt 
that we could address problems with. And that's the type of educator you want to be. It's really all about relationships. And if you establish a relationship with your students in the classroom that is safe and that they feel comfortable and they know they can ask you questions, not only clinically, but also emotionally and socially, you've succeeded as an educator in helping that person grow. And that's the most important thing. I don't think we could top that. So thank you to our guests, to Sir Hedge, to Katie, to guest slash host, ghost, Maya. And uh, of course, uh, she's been Hilary Gates. I've been Rob Lawrence. And until the next edition of the MS Educator podcast, it's bye for now.